The scripture reading today is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16, verses 13 through 28. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, but others Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he sternly ordered the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. From that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and undergo great suffering at the hands of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this must never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone, if any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit them if they gain the whole world but forfeit their life? Or what will they give in return for their life? For the Son of Man is to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay everyone for what has been done. Truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. The word of the Lord. Take a moment now for silent reflection. Pray with me. Try and God, we, we ask for your life in this moment to shine forth. Give us the courage to face ourselves. Give us the eyes to see and the ears to hear what you have for us and the ability to trust that what you have for us 
is good. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. It's a, an honor and a, a deep privilege to be uh, preaching uh, this morning and to be continuing our series, Experiencing Jesus. You know, the last time I spoke, uh, my world was very different. Uh, and I look back at Joshua, you know, in November, just in November, and I was like, that guy, I had, you know, he had it made. You know, his life was so simple. Uh, I became a father this past December. Uh, my wife, Melody, and I welcomed our first child into the world, uh, Joaquin. Um, yeah, that, that deserves applause. Yes, it does. Thank you. Um, I, I just want to say, uh, before we get into our text this morning, that I've, I've been really, we have been really, really touched and blown away by the ways in which um, you collectively as a church family have checked up on us, uh, have cared for us, provided us meals, showered us with gifts. Um, we have felt so cared for, and uh, you know, on behalf of our family, thank you for being our church family um, in this time and what continues to be a strange time in our world. Um, and so before we get into our text this morning, I, I, I want to uh, focus our attention to a well-known song. You know, we have a really well-known text that was just read uh, for us. Um, but I want to focus our text first on, on this well-known song because I want to use this song to kind of frame or set up our passage for us. And uh, that, that song is going to be on screen here. Um, this is John Lennon's uh, Imagine. And I'm going to be reading just a selection of lyrics um, from his song. And so, uh, as you know, the, the selection, I mean, the, the song goes, imagine there's no countries, it isn't hard to do, nothing to kill or die for, and no religion too. Imagine all the people, I love that, I can't, I, I can't not sing that melody, living life in peace, right? Um, imagine no possessions, I wonder if you can, no need for greed or hunger, a brotherhood of man, Imagine all the people sharing all the world. You may say that I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will be as one. I don't think I need to explain why that song is so captivating because I think that John Lennon is, is speaking to something that is deep inside every single one of us. There's this deep desire that all of us hunger and long for a new world. You know, living in 2022, we probably have much more to add to that. This world that he paints, a world without greed, a world without borders. We would add a world without patriarchy, a world without mass incarceration, a world without fill in the blank. Because when we look out at the deep brokenness in our world, it's not difficult to want a new world. And I remember one of my mentors, uh, David Rim, uh, reflecting on this particular song, and uh, he pointed out how the song is incomplete. And it's incomplete not because we don't have more to add to it, but it's incomplete because John Lennon paints this picture of the world that all of us are longing for. But he doesn't tell us how this world comes about. He, 
he sets it up for us. He provides this vision and then leaves all of us hanging because he never tells us how we get this world. And that's so important, this question of how. Because we need someone to show us how we work towards a more just and more peaceful world. We need that. I need that. But it's the same for all of us, because while so many of us uh, could probably offer deep, uh, deeply imaginative, more compelling visions of our world, I'm willing to bet that if you sat down and posed the question, how do we get this world that you and I dream and long for, we would be hard-pressed to provide an answer. The question of how is actually really crucial to our text this morning. It's the question that our text wants to answer. The authors of Matthew uh, are, are trying to describe what kind of Messiah Jesus is. And in this passage, they are raising this crucial question to us. Not does Jesus save, but how does Jesus save? This is the the question the disciples themselves are asking. If Jesus is the Messiah, the long-awaited king of Israel, how will Jesus liberate them from their enemies? How will Jesus restore Israel's kingdom to its former glory? And so this question should be at the backdrop of their story. And our story, we're in the middle of an intimate conversation between Jesus and the disciples, and it starts off great. It starts off really well, really positive. We, we get the, uh, the dramatic confession of Peter, right? You are the Christ, the Christ, son of the living God. And we get Jesus' affirmation of that confession. Yeah, you're right, Peter. Two for two. And then we get, this is where the text, things take a turn. Because suddenly Jesus starts explaining what it means for him to be the Messiah. And he starts describing how he would need to suffer and ultimately give up his life in order to be the Messiah. It doesn't matter that Jesus ends with uh, that he would be raised from the dead because by that point all the air is sucked out of the room. And what starts off as what's supposed to be this intimate conversation, something that's supposed to bring intimacy and probably solidarity between Jesus and his disciples instead is something that creates more distance. You might notice that the text emphasizes the magnitude of Jesus' suffering. It's not that Jesus would just give up his life, but that Jesus would have to endure a humiliating death. So this is a devastating defeat to the disciples. You could just, you could just see them recoil at Jesus' words. Like, like, this is the way. And who can blame them? Because the way in which God chooses to save humanity is so unlike anything that normal humans would conceive. It borders on insanity. You know, this is the reason why Peter uh, pulls Jesus aside, you know, has a private sidebar with Jesus and says, this can't happen, this can never happen to you. This is crazy talk. And Peter is right. <laughs> right? Out of all the outlandish things we know Peter to say in, in, in the Gospels, isn't this the most sensible thing that Peter has said? This isn't the way to grow a movement. This is not something that you put on a company mission statement. I mean, this is bad PR. The optics alone. 
Like, this is not something you would ever hear in a rap song. Can you imagine? That'd be the worst rap song ever. What would you call it? Every day I'm suffering? Like, that doesn't work. What? You know, in, in all seriousness, like, we, I think we feel the, polar, the polarizing nature of Jesus' words. Not just because it threatens the comfortable and happy life that you and I envision for ourselves, but because on a practical level, I just don't think that we believe that it works. That this is the way that we bring healing into our world? That this is what I should pattern my life after? But notice that Jesus does not shy away from our discomfort. In fact, he seems to double down. Because after Peter's criticism, he goes back to the disciples and explains what it means for them to follow in that way. And so we're going to unpack that um, in these two movements. I'd like to propose two frames today that we can think of in experiencing Jesus as the way. Uh, we'll focus on uh, verses 24 and 25. Um, those two ways are the way of Jesus liberates us from a false sense of self, and the way of Jesus reveals to us our true self. So for you note takers, the way of Jesus liberates and the way of Jesus reveals. And I propose these two frames because I think the text is really challenging on modern ears. You know, we hear um, the phrases, take up your cross, deny yourself. And the challenge for us is to hear those phrases as life-giving or liberating. Because all we hear in Jesus' words is the prohibition. All we hear is, is what not to do. And it's easy for us to think that when we hear phrases like deny yourself, that Jesus is telling us to suppress or deny parts of who we are. Is that what's going on? I don't think so. I, I think that rather than telling us to deny parts of our identity, Jesus is asking us to reject this false sense of self that we've created for ourselves. Rather than deny parts of who we are, Jesus is calling into question a very particular way that you and I live our lives. And that's this. I want to describe this way of life as the pursuit of self. Ego. This is an entirely self-centered way of living. And even though no, none of us want to live this way, we're so deeply entrenched in it. It affects nearly every facet of our lives, our relationships, our careers, the entertainment we consume, our social media. And many of the times it can be masses as innocent individualism. I'm like, like that, that's just them finding their voice. They're just a hard worker. They're just, they're just hustling and making moves for themselves. And in our high-achieving subculture that is SF, you know, we have so many ways that we can rationalize this. But at the end of the day, our actions show us this deeply held belief that you and I have. That life is all about us. I remember one time I heard uh, the comedian Bo, Berman, Bo Burnham describe social media as the market's answer to a generation that demanded to perform. So the market said, here, perform everything to each other all the time. 
That's a really powerful image, not because it, it's, it says something about social media, but it talks about how social media exposes our collective view of life. That life is our stage, and we're the main act, and we can't stop performing. And it's difficult to see because it's the water we're swimming in. One writer describes our societal self-absorption as the deep belief that you are the absolute center of the universe, the realest, most vivid, and important person in existence. They go on to write, we rarely think about this natural, basic self-centeredness because it's so socially repulsive. But think about it. There's no experience that you have had that you are not the absolute center of. The world as you experience it is in front of you or behind you, to the left or right of you, on your TV, on your smartphone. Others' people's thoughts and feelings have to be communicated to you, but your own are so immediate, urgent, real. And our collective preoccupation with self is what Jesus is resisting in this passage. This false sense of self is why Jesus' critique of Peter is so severe. Because Peter is speaking and acting in a way that the Satan does in the wilderness temptations of Jesus. If you recall those, what happens, what's similar in each of those temptations is that the Satan is urging Jesus to use his divine status and power to benefit himself. And it's in really small, seemingly subtle ways. The Satan's tempts Jesus to turn stones into bread. Who would blame Jesus for satisfying his hunger? To using his power to satisfy his hunger? Especially when no one's looking. The Satan tempts Jesus to throw himself down from the highest point of the temple in Jerusalem. Why not put on this most, the most spectacular display of power that the world has ever seen? Why not show everyone who you really are? But Jesus refuses to use power in that way. Because Jesus knows that divine power is not the ability to win millions of followers to his cause. True power is not self-seeking. The power that Jesus uses is a love that expresses itself through weakness and inhumility. And it takes the shape of the cross. That's what it means to deny the false self. But Christ's work isn't merely there to liberate us from this false sense of self. It also reveals to us our true self, our true humanity, so the, te the text connects these actions in verse 25. We have to die to ourselves in order to find our true self. And here's why I think that the reading of uh, Jesus' teachings, uh, Jesus' teaching here specifically in this passage, but also all of his other teachings, if we read it specifically as just like the upside-down way, which is a really valid way to read Jesus, I, I think it could be misleading. Because that interpretive lens, what it does is it overemphasizes mystery. God's ways are so much higher than ours, you know. Who are we feeble humans but to, yes, you know, submit to the divine will. No, it's not mystery that Jesus is, 
is emphasizing in this passage, Jesus is saying something really true. He's trying to reveal something, a deep truth about the reality of our world. And what is that deep truth? That deep truth is that you and I are most human. Not when we cling to life for ourselves, but we're most human when we freely give of ourselves to other people. That's how you find the true meaning of life. Why? Because as a wise mentor once told me, God has created you and I in such a way that the more we give of ourselves, the more we find ourselves. My last name uh, has been a source of unwanted drama in my life. My ethnic background is Filipino-American. There you go. (laughs) Solidarity. For those of you wondering, uh, this is how you pronounce my last name. Halan Do'on. So say it with me. Halan Do'on. Oh my gosh, it sounds like we have like Filipinos in the house. This is beautiful. I expect that level of perfection every time. No, I'm kidding. Please don't feel bad if you mispronounce my last name, but it's really important to me that I do. Um, And I'll tell you why. It all started when I was in seminary, and I I took this class on Asian American identity. I reluctantly took the class because I was like, why why should I take this class? But that class was a life-changing experience for me. It was life-changing, but it was also really, really difficult. It it, it was hard for me. because I started to unpack all of this generational pain in my ethnic heritage. So through that class, I learned uh, how Filipino immigrants were first treated uh, when they first arrived in the States, um, and how they were forced to assimilate into American culture. Uh, I learned how, how Filipino names were Latinized when we were colonized under Spain, um, and they were later angli- anglicized uh, when many of us immigrated um, so that we would not be perceived as foreigners. And all this perfectly explained uh, why I, even though I knew the correct way to pronounce my name in Tagalog, you know, growing up, I knew that I preferred to say Jalandun. Because I was a brown city kid uh, going up private school in the suburbs, and I didn't want to stick out. But, but that omission, that, that really small erasure, was just one of the ways I began to see my Filipino heritage as, as inferior to American culture. So coming to terms to all this was really hard for me. It was a hard pill for me to swallow. Um, I couldn't finish writing papers sometimes because it was so painful. It felt like I was in therapy. Um, and it was touching not just on my pain, but, but decades worth of, of generational and cultural pain. And so one day I had a conversation with my dad about this because I wanted to make sure that I wasn't just, you know, dreaming all this up. Uh, I, I asked him, I said, Dad, you know, when, when, we, when we were growing up, why did you pronounce our name this way? Why did you teach us to do that? I'll never forget what my dad said. He said, uh, when I first came to the States, no one could pronounce it, right? So at some point, I just stopped correcting them. You know, there's moments where you see your parents' humanity, and I I felt like in that moment I saw my dad's humanity. 
And it really broke my heart. I come from a proud Filipino family. My grandfather was a commodore in the Filipino Navy. A Polonero Halandoon. He was part of uh, the Pacific conflict in World War II. There's this naval base actually in the Philippines named after my grandfather. And my name is like the only thing that I have left of my culture. Like really, that's like one of the few connections I feel like I have left because I grew up here. And what seems like a really small thing is actually a core part of who I am. So fast forward to graduation in, um, in seminary. Um, I don't remember too much about that time when I graduated, but I remember the weeks leading up to graduation were really stressful. I was uh, interviewing for pastoral jobs. I was trying to finish up classes at the same time. I was juggling part-time jobs. Uh, one of those jobs was working at the School of Theology. I worked at the dean's office in my school. Um, and I remember being so spread thin at the time that I was like giving 50%, you know, to my responsibilities. We can all relate, all right? We, we work through the pandemic. We're bringing 50% of ourselves to our work. And I remember be, just being exhausted, you know, like by the time, like, I don't know how I'm going to make it to graduation. I'm like failing at everything. I just need to graduate already, right? And so the week of graduation, I'm working at the dean's office at Fuller, and uh, Dr. Marianne Thompson, the dean at the time, uh, calls me into her office, and I immediately go, uh-oh, this is not good. So keep in mind, I would hardly see Marianne. It, it, we had the relationship where it's like, no news is good news, right? She's busy being a, a, a scholar, teaching classes. Uh, she's busy running the School of Theology. And so when I get called into her office, I'm just bracing myself her to talk about where my performance is uh, not up to snuff. And so I get in her office and she says to me, hey, this isn't going to take too long. I just need you to help me out with something. And I say, okay, what do you need? And she says to me, I need you to help me pronounce your last name. I've been working on the graduate list for graduation, and it's really important to me that I get your name right. I've been trying to figure it out all day. Can you help me? I'm really stunned at this point. Because the whole time I think she's going to reprimand me. And here she is, the dean of our school. She's a premier New Testament scholar in her field. She's got more important things to worry about. Like, who am I? She doesn't know my story. She doesn't know me personally. But out of all the priorities that are more significant, here she is, falling all over herself to get the pronunciation of my name right. I never told her what that meant to me and what it later meant to my family my dad, to see his son graduate and to hear our family name honored. I think that picture, it shows me the way of Jesus. Right? It's one that's not preoccupied with our own interests and it makes other people's interests our primary preoccupation. Right? It sees others as more important of our, than ourselves. That's the mind of Christ, Philippians 2, right? 
In his life and and death, Jesus isn't scared. He's not scared to let go of his status as God. That's the way that Jesus calls you and I too. He stoops lower than any of us would dare to go. And he gives up his life so that we might have life. That's the way that Jesus calls to us too. To have the courage to die to ourselves in order to find ourselves. To have the courage to die so that others might find life and that we might live into our truest, most fullest, most realest self, more enduring than anything in our world. And this is not the neglect of our bodily needs, right? It places our needs in perspective. My true essence, my true self, I am most alive when I am giving myself to others. I am most myself when I, I don't have to worry. I don't have to worry about what people think of me all the time. I can freely love people for their sake, not for my own. So please hear me, I'm not advocating for saviorism. I'm not. We still have a long way to go with interrogating our entanglement in in structural oppression, present company included. But I am saying that if we're trying to examine how our lives align with the way of Jesus, if the patterns of our life show this preoccupation with ourselves, and this is something that only we can know, rather than the concern of the needs of others, especially the most vulnerable, I really think that we should question whether or not we are truly following in the way of Jesus. Saviorism is the opposite of that. It's, it's manicured. It says, I'm committed to your flourishing when it benefits me, when it makes me look good. And the way of Jesus says, I flourish only when you flourish. And so I'm so committed to your flourishing even when I'm not front and center. Even when it costs me. That's the way that will change our world. So siblings in Christ, may you have the courage to die to yourself and walk in the way of the crucified Christ so that others might find life. And the moment that you do, would you experience liberation, joy, and life to the fullest? Pray with me. Spirit, would you uh, impress on our hearts the things that we've heard and seen today and witnessed, and would they stir up, God, this desire to walk in your way and to let go of ourselves. And it is in Christ's name we pray these things. Amen.